3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to 3 a.m. Tales of Terror, where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm your co-host, Charlie. And today's episode is episode number 10. Can you believe that? Yeah. We've made it so far. I just hope, you know, our listeners enjoy it. Yeah, we've gotten doing better than I thought we would to start out with. Yeah. I mean, I know there's a lot of stories out there, but like, dang, I didn't think we would make it this far with people actually liking us. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to our family. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so today's episode, we're going to be telling you two stories. Um, one is The first one is Dead Woman's Crossing in Weatherford, Oklahoma. And the second one is the Dakota Apartments in New York. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I can remember where it was. New okay. York, New York. Yeah, New York, New York. So Dead Woman's Crossing in Oklahoma will be our first story. And then our second one is the Dakota Apartments in New York, New York. So two for one special today. So do you want to go ahead and get started? Yeah, let's do this. Okay, so Dead Woman's Crossing. On a map of western Oklahoma, you will find Dead Woman's Crossing near Weatherford. The mystery of what happened to Katie James here in 1905 has become local legend. On July 7th, 29-year-old schoolteacher Katie DeWitt James left her abusive husband, Martin Luther James, and boarded a train with her 13-month-old baby Lulu in Custer City, bound for Weatherford and then Ripley to stay with her relatives. As the train departed, Katie waved to her father, Henry DeWitt, unaware she would never see him again. At a stop in Clinton, local prostitute Fanny Norton befriended Katie, telling her about a strange man asking questions at the station. Katie was nervous, so Fanny convinced her to get off the train at Weatherford and stay the night with Fanny's brother-in-law, then catch tomorrow's train. On July 28th, Henry had not heard from his daughter, so he hired Detective Sam Bartell, who went to Weatherford to piece together Katie's final movements. Witnesses saw Katie leave the train with with Fanny and spend the night at William Moore's house. They left the next morning for a leisurely three-hour buggy ride toward Hydro. So, hold on. On July 7th, she left. Mm-hmm. So, 21 days. 21 days, and then his, her dad starts to wonder. Yeah. That's... <laughs> the story does not... I'm just, I'm just saying the story doesn't, like, get any better as to, like, like a WTF moment. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, so, that's just, like... That, that's the first sign of like, why'd you wait so freaking long? You waited almost a month. Yeah. And now you start to wonder where she is? Ugh. No. So, after that buggy ride, less than an hour later, Fanny's buggy was seen fleeing full speed from Deer Creek. She stopped at the Birchids farmhouse to leave Lulu, her clothes and blankets stained with blood. Fanny tossed other bloody clothes in nearby bushes. Bartell found Lulu still at the Birchids and blood stains on the buggy in town. Fanny had rushed back to Clinton took her four children to Guthrie and disappeared. On July 29th, which is one day after the dad hired a private investigator, uh, Fanny was arrested in Shawnee. The authorities knew her from a previous Weatherford shooting where a sympathetic jury acquitted her. During questioning, Fanny was visibly nervous. During a break, Fanny went to the bathroom, swallowed poison, and died less than an hour later. A month later, while crossing a bridge at Deer Creek, George Cornell and his sons discovered Katie's severed skull with a bullet hole right behind her right ear. Her badly decomposed body was hidden in a clump of bushes nearby. 
Fanny's 38 caliber, caliber revolver was found nearby and the same one used in the Weatherford shooting. DeWitt identified his daughter's body through her tattered but recognizable clothing, hat, a comb in her hair, shoes, and her gold wedding band. The coroner declared robbery as the motive, but why leave a valuable ring? There was also plenty of speculation about Martin. Strangely, he hadn't seemed concerned that his baby daughter was missing, but he had an airtight alibi provided by his friend, a local deputy sheriff. There's a lot to unpack right there, like with Fanny. Yeah, so the way it reads, it took two months pretty much for them to find her. But so what I didn't, so what to me, I know you understood this a little bit better is like, what did Fanny do? Like, so Fanny shot somebody. Katie. Okay, so Fanny shot Katie and then she was arrested and then she killed herself. Yes. (sighs) So Katie decided that this uh, prostitute would be a great person to go home with and spend the night with her family and then go on a buggy ride with her the next day. I mean, at least they left the kid at that person's house. I guess. After the fact. I mean, the child technically witnessed the murder because it was blood on her clothes. But Lulu was, Lulu's 13 months old. Yeah. She's not gonna remember. She's not gonna remember, but like, why didn't she shoot the baby? Kind of. I guess she felt... She had her own kids. Yeah. So, but to kill the mother in front of a baby, like, even if it's not gonna remember. You never know. Yeah. I mean, if it's traumatic enough, it might. Yeah. So, I don't, I mean... It's just getting with a stranger, then you get shot, and then... So then she, they found Katie a month later. So a month after July 29th, that's what yeah. I understand. Okay, yeah. so she left two months ago, July 7th, and then they find her August 29th. That just, <clears throat> what are you doing? What are you doing for two months? Like, it's like, if you knew, they knew the route the buggy went. Why did it take so long? Who knows? And I don't think that robbery was the motive because it, not just because of the ring. I, I just think that she was already involved in the shooting. Right. I think that Fanny was just freaking crazy. Like, I really do. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Martin, Martin is just a terrible husband. Martin, what are you doing? You don't care. I understand. Okay. I get, I get maybe not caring about the wife too much, but you got a baby. Um, you don't care about the baby he was abusive why should he if he doesn't care about his wife why would he care about his kid i don't i don't know i feel like he should he should obviously i mean the dad i mean the dad cared more i guess i don't know it's just yeah martin didn't i don't think martin did it that's i i'm not saying i don't think martin did it but he wasn't really concerned that she disappeared. But he, yeah, but he wasn't concerned. So he might not have been a part of it, but it's like, what are you doing, dude? You really not care that much? Like, you, yeah. I don't know. So after Katie's death, Martin moved to Dewey County with Lulu. I don't also like that Lulu ended up with Martin. Why couldn't yeah. she have ended up with The Henry? father Henry. Yeah, yeah, her grandpa. Like, Henry never saw her again, which is also, that also makes me mad. Henry never saw her again, but he received updates from his sister who lived nearby. When Henry sent Lulu new clothes through his sister, Martin told Lulu that Katie was still alive and the clothes were from her. In January 1913, eight-year-old Lulu died of spinal meningitis. So, there's also a lot to freaking unpack in that paragraph alone, too. Like, (laughs) so, Lulu ends up with her dad, which I don't, personally, I don't think that should have happened. Yeah. 
I don't think that should have happened. Now, the spinal meningitis is not his fault. He didn't, so obviously he was only abusive to Katie, but you didn't let Henry, you didn't let, you didn't hold her, you didn't let her grandfather see her again. Like, and then you lied to her saying that your mother's still alive. Yeah. She's just not around. When you freaking knew that she was shot in front of her, like whether she remembers that or not, like you kind of have to, I don't know. I don't feel like you should lie to a child like that. Yeah. Like. What did he explain? They didn't love each other, so she left, and she's never going to see her mother again. Yeah, I would rather know that a parent died versus that they just left me. Yeah, they're sending me clothes, but they can't be bothered to visit. Exactly. That's, mm, no, mm, I don't like that. I mean, and, and I hate that she died. It was only eight, she was only eight years old. That sucks, but then again, it's also... Is it a blessing in disguise? So that way yeah. she doesn't... We know she had a shitty father, so... Be- right. That's what I'm saying. Like, is it is it a blessing in disguise because she lost her mother, who obviously cared for her because she took her with her when she left. Her grandfather obviously cared about her and, you know, her her, her and his daughter. So, you know, is it, is it... Was it a blessing in disguise that she died at eight years old so she didn't have to live her entire life with her abusive father? What if, you know, she turned she turned into a teenager and he started abusing her? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you kind of got to look at it like that, too, I guess. I mean, that's how I kind of look at it. It's like, okay, but is that, was that a good thing? It yeah. sucks, but. I mean, it's not like she was murdered. It was just. Right. Today, the mystery of Katie James's fate continues. Legend claims her spirit haunts the bridge near the site of her murder, known as Dead Woman's Crossing. Reportedly, at midnight, you can hear the sound of a woman crying for her child, as well as the sound of wagon wheels. The wooden crossing where Katie's body was found was torn down 80 years later, but a concrete bridge was built nearby, and that structure is what's now known as Dead Woman's Crossing. It's sad. This is this is more of a sad story to me than anything, because, like, I don't... It sucks. Yeah, it is just sad. And I, I get... I mean, I would haunt the place, too. We, I mean, we talk about this... Brutally murdered people we've, typically do. Yeah, we've talked about this plenty of times you guys know this already like i would definitely be haunting someplace that i was murdered and that my child was taken away from me like it doesn't uh, no i don't know i don't like the way (laughs) i don't i don't like the story like i I like the story because it's fun you know it's a cool story to tell and it's like you know it's it's it happened but like it sucks so i'm sorry which is why i want to do the story first because the next one doesn't suck as bad so (laughs) oh yeah so my resources for this story are atlas obscura and I'm going to say it wrong. It's muskogeephoenix.com. Muskogee. Yeah, see, muskogeephoenix.com. So, if you... Shout out to my friends in Muskogee. (laughs) Yes, because I don't. Okay, so I guess we can move on to... Was there anything else you wanted to say about this story or... No, I think we covered it all. Yeah. It's a rough story. So, hopefully, this, this, this next story, the Dakota Apartments, will cheer you guys up a little bit. So guess we can go i mean ahead. it is just another murder <laughs> i mean yeah but it's not like sad. It's not sad it's not you know i don't know we'll see what you guys think because i know that first story was kind of a downer yeah so <laughs> the dakota apartments new york new york yes the dakota building set the standard for upper west side apartment living built at a time when the upper classes were only just becoming familiar with the concept of living in an apartment so this is some of the history of the dakota apartments Edward Cabot Clark, the founder and CEO of the Singer Manufacturing Company of sewing machine fame and wealth, was a New York real estate speculator who had a vision for the barren wastelands of the Upper West Side, as well as sparing no expense on the Dakota building. He also corralled other developers to commit to maintaining the luxury feel of the new neighborhood. 
located on the northwest corner of Central Park West and 72nd Street across the road from Strawberry Fields. The building was designed by Henry Jane Hardenberg, who would go on to design the Plaza Hotel and the Waldorf Astoria. No detail was overlooked in the design and floor plan, up to 16 rooms in some apartments, and highly embellished exterior and overall style that defies easy classification. Some called it chateau-esque and some German Renaissance. The address has been upscale and exclusive from the start. Construction started on October 25th of 1880, but did not finish until October 27th of 1884. The surroundings were a long way from the action at the time. Downtown was a lot further south than it is today. Some joke that the name refers to the remoteness of the building. 16 rooms? In an apartment. In an apartment? I would love to see how that looks. If anybody knows how that looks, please take pictures. Or I'll try and find some pictures. But like, dang, I would love to see how that looks. Yeah, back then, like, that would be cool to see. Yeah. So, some features of the Dakota Apartments. Although every style of building is seen in New York City, the Dakota is a unique blend with steep roofs with high gabled sides. Balconies jut out from all sides, decoration is plentiful, and again, of no real style except that all of its own. The Dakota apartment building is square and plan, built around an airy and atmospheric central courtyard. The main entrance is arched and large enough for a big horse-drawn carriage. The entrance is in the archway to permit passengers to disembark while avoiding any inclement weather. With carriages, there are horses. These were accommodated in a large two-section stable with multiple stories. Once horses were superseded by the horseless carriage, the stables were converted into a garage and used as such until 2007. Later, the impressive building was transformed into a condominium. Inside, the floor plans of the apartments were influenced strongly by the architectural trends going on in France. Across every apartment, all major rooms were connected to the others. All these rooms are also accessible from a nearby corridor or hall. This novel arrangement allows guests to flow from one room to another naturally, especially important for entertaining and at holiday periods. Also, the principal entertaining rooms in all apartments faced an external street. Oddly, this includes most master bedroom suites, so pretty noisy to have your bedroom facing the main road. Yeah, for real. The apartments could be aired from two different sides, allowing for easy flow of breezes and air. At this time, this kind of layout was a novelty. Interior fittings were luxurious as well. Floors of cherry, oak, or mahogany laid lovingly by master craftsmen while the ceilings reach up to 14 feet high. So, I mean, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) A little odd layout. Right. But still beautiful. Oh yeah, for sure. And every apartment was laid out differently, built with 65 apartments of 4 to 20 rooms each. That is crazy. Several have been subdivided since. The apartments could also be accessed both via a staircase or elevator. The service staff had a separate set of stairs for the many kitchens and some elevators. With occupants coming from the large individual family homes around the city, there needed to be many amenities that had been attractive and exceptional for the time. There was a large central dining room from which meals could be sent to the individual apartments via dumbwaiters. Rare at the time, there was also central heating, not to mention a gymnasium and playroom in the building. These these communal spaces were on the 10th floor, but were later converted to even more apartments. Naturally, there was a private lawn for the tenant for the tenants with a garden, several tennis courts, and of course, a private croquet lawn. The apartments appeared advertised in the New York press in 1933, featuring an interview with the full-time manager of the building, considered a landmark of New York City even when it was launched. The building has long been an exclusive residence. 
1972, the building was added to the Register of Historic Places. However, it wasn't until 1976 that the building was considered a historic landmark. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That it's, it's a historic landmark. Of, of course, a private croquet lawn. Oh, because of course. <laughs> you know, can't yeah. live without that. No, and, but, and the dumbwaiters, that's, I'm not. I would like that. No, 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 no. I've seen way too many horror movies with dumbwaiters. Never the end food. up well. Food uh, up for it for me. <laughs> Yeah, until you get stuck in one. That's why you don't go in them. You just well, grab the food out. What if you don't get stuck in them? What if a ghost does? And then you're pulled in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about that. At least I'll have food. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some notable residents. The Dakota has been home to artists and performers throughout its history. The notoriously choosy condo board has refused several well-known residents applying for the right to purchase an apartment in the building. In 2005, Albert Mazels had proposed selling an apartment to actors Antonio Banderas and Melanie Griffith. The board rejected the actor couple. Albert had told the New York Times that he was disappointed with the way the building had seemed to be changing. He felt the board was losing touch with its artistic roots, which encouraged interesting people to live there. He accused them of only being concerned with those who had the money. Other notable rejected applicants include Billy Joel, Carly Simon, and Gene Simmons, and even Dennis Mayhill, the paper cup baron of America in 2002. The most famous residents were John Lennon and Yoko Ono, a member of the Beatles and solo artist with his visual artist wife, Yoko. Lennon was murdered at the steps of the Dakota in 1980. It was a cold December night when he was killed in cold blood by Mark David Chapman. Mark was a music fan with mental health issues. He shot John Lennon four times in the shoulder and back. Lennon died almost instantly. He only took a few steps before he collapsed on the ground. The loss was worldwide news and marked another handy marker for a turning point in world history. Now, I know that threw you off a little bit because I don't think you knew that before we started reading the yes, story I, about John Lennon. That's I, why I knew was he was <laughs> murdered, but not in a, you know, a story not we were going to do. Exactly. <laughs> so I saw that. I was like, ooh, yeah, definitely doing this. It makes me more intrigued about the building. Right. It makes me want to go. <laughs> so let's get into the paranormal uh, activity in the Dakota apartments. New York is a physically active place, the site of many hauntings, and so Um. much human passion and energy that ghosts are perhaps inevitable. We picked up the reports of ghostly activity at the Dakota Apartments in the 1960s. A construction worker who was working near the apartment stated he saw a figure with the body of a man but the face of a young boy, coinciding with the death of another famous resident, Judy Holliday. The construction workers also felt like they were being closely watched while they worked, or perhaps they were just being too loud. Today's resident, today residents claim to have seen a little girl dressed in period clothing, waving and smiling from several lower windows. It is said that the spirit of John Lennon lives on the Dakota apartment, lives on in the Dakota apartments today. One resident witnessed John Lennon playing piano right in their apartment. He was murdered in the archway of the southern entrance. Sometime after the murder, many people claimed to see Lennon leaning against the wall in his characteristic white flared suit in the stone archway where he died. He was seen by several people with an eerie light surrounding him. One woman said Lennon spoke to her. She claimed he said, do not be afraid. I am still here with you. John Lennon himself had reported seeing supernatural happenings. He claims he saw a UFO from one of the windows of the apartment in the Dakota building. He also repeatedly met a ghost he called cri- he called the crying lady ghost. She was said to be lurking benevolently benevolently in the hallways of the older parts of the now extended and modified building. I'm still here with you. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, that's great. Like, you can haunt the place, but leave me alone. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> why? It's just like a, a woman. It's not. You don't need to know that. Just a random woman. I know. It's not like <laughs> anybody she knew, like, or he knew, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, one reoccurring happening has been that objects have been seen in their apartments to move for the, of their own accord, even large objects like furniture or rugs. Residents also often report hearing tiny footsteps and odd noises at strange time and times in their apartments. Frederick Weinstein, a resident, and his wife Susanna went on record reporting seeing the lights of a chandelier in his living room from below the street. He saw this through the 72nd Street window. However, he does not have any chandeliers. However, when he ran into his apartment, the lights were gone. But upon further inspection, he did notice a patched up set of bolts in the ceiling where a chandelier had once hung. The most sinister stories in the Dakota building of New York come from the basement. Once a porter had taken a tenant to the basement area with the intent to show them the objects moving mysteriously on their own. The porter had been in the room earlier when a heavy metal bar went flying across the room, nearly hitting the porter. The two men were down in the basement investigating these claims. The porter claimed the bar landed at the porter's feet, and he had gone to pick it up only to find it was way far too heavy for him to lift. Other people have seen a man who looks like Edward Cabot Clark, the developer of the building, once again in the basement. However, Clark never lived in the building. So that's also weird. <laughs> like, how big was this bar that got thrown at him? I know. To not even be, be able to pick it up. Yeah. And he should be strong. He's a porter, right? Right. Still weird. Yeah. I don't. It's, hey, this thing almost hit me. Let's go check it out. I right. want you to see it. <laughs> it's the it's the freaking metal rod floating down the hallway all over again. Yeah. Don't. I'm. Uh. It saved me from it. <laughs> And I was like, nah, I'm leaving you to it. I don't want to get hit with it. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds, you know, like the Dakota is still fairly haunted. Yeah. I would like to go see it. I think that would be, be cool. cool. I There's don't know. There's lots of stuff in New York. Yeah. Cause... I don't know if I would want to stay there, though. Yeah. Maybe. And just because Edward Cabot Clark didn't live in the building doesn't mean that he wouldn't haunt it. He could have murdered someone in the basement. It. Well, that, yeah. And he built it. Yeah. So, Someone I mean, could be underneath a cement concrete. Yeah. Because that's one of my fears of new constructions. <laughs> is that someone falls in and then they just fill up the concrete over them. Oh my god. <laughs> that's, yeah. I never thought about that as like a... Hashtag monster house. Genuine fear. Oh my god. you remember that? Yes. <laughs> the lady buried under the concrete. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I see. <laughs> no. The... <laughs> So my resources for this story was nyghost.com, wikipedia, abcnews.go.com, and thelineup.com. You can go to any of those websites and look up your own information about these stories if you want. Um, We also post pictures and the links to all of the episodes that I talk about on our website, so you can go and check that out too there. And any pictures that we find, we post up there too. So, yep. We hope you enjoyed these two stories today. I know we did. They were they were pretty good stories. Yes. So. An interesting read. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and nothing you do isn't interesting. Right. <laughs> <sighs> That's it for today. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and listening to our show. Don't forget you can find us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. All the links can be found on our website, 3, the number 3, not the word, 3amtalesofterror.com. You can also subscribe with your email for updates there as well. If you have any questions for us or story ideas, you can email us at info at 3amtalesofterror.com. 
We hope you'll join us next week. And, and we, we hope, hope you, you were, were terrified. terrified.